Rainy's going to lead us in prayer here. Thank you, Father, that, that we can learn from your words. And I just ask that you would open our ears and our hearts and spirits to hear everything you have. And just give wisdom to John and Zev in Jesus' name. Thank you. All right, my friends, nice to see you all. Good morning. I said good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We are alive. <laughs> really? Uh, should I tell the joke that Pastor Bartow, who is a Presbyterian, always talks and says about Presbyterians? Should I tell that joke? He says that Presbyterians are so stiff you can't even get them to raise their hands at a holdup. <laughs> and he can do that because he's Presbyterian, okay? So. Oh, we are the frozen. Ah, well, I wasn't going to use that one, so. I absolutely love Presbyterians, so it's just all good fun. All right, now, uh, here's today, denial and restoration. Uh, we're going to juxtaposition, of course, the famous denials of Peter against what Jesus does for him later. Uh, we need to answer two questions, and I just love it as an educator when the people who ask brilliant questions at the end of the class then don't come the next week. <laughs> right? So Judge Haas and Sister Barb with the distinctive snow white hair uh, are not here, but we're answering their questions anyways. They can get it on podcast, I guess, or whatever. Does anyone remember what Judge Haas's question was? See, I should have just said... I should have said, uh, they'll, they'll never remember. They'll forget about the question, and we'll just. He wanted to know, because we were talking about Judas, in light of God's omniscience, knowing all things from the beginning to the end, did Judas actually have a volitional choice, or was he basically a pawn in a divine schema that he had no choice? He had to play this role out. Do you remember this question? Mm-hmm. Yeah, Okay. So at the heart of Judge's question is this issue which Presbyterians have made a distinctive contribution in the history of the Christian faith on, and that is with regard to the sovereignty of God. Who thinks they know what the sovereignty of God means when we use that phraseology? Okay, omniscient would mean omnipresent. Omnip- okay, that would mean omniscient. He knows all. God knows all things. Omnipresent would be all, all everywhere present simultaneously. Fully in charge. He's sovereign. He is totally in charge of everything, no matter what. Sovereign okay. means no other higher. No other higher power. No other higher authority. Does that mean then that God's no declared will, God's will that God really wants to have happen. Not God's permissive will, but God's declared will. Does that will come to pass? Does that will come to pass? Yes. I believe in the sovereignty of God. When you believe in the sovereignty of God, you can lay your head at, on the pillow at night and say, I believe in the God who causes all things to work together according to the counsel of God's own will. Ephesians 1. What does that mean? It's like Donald Trump, he doesn't have to consult anyone. (laughs) 
I'm sorry. We can make it a little fun, right? Donald's a good guy. I like, I'm praying for him every day. So I'm not, I'm not making an anti-Donald Trump statement. I'm just saying, he says, I don't have to consult anybody. I'm my best own counselor. So what does God say? I don't need to consult anyone. I'm God. I'm sovereign. My declared will will come to pass. Now, that causes a little bit of a glitch in our spirits because why? Well, what? Because of this, uh, see, you, you, you shouldn't swear in a Presbyterian church. <laughs> free will. Does the Bible talk about free will? No. It talks about the humans have volitional ability. That means they have the ability to make certain choices within the paradigm that God has put us in. But we're not totally free. In fact, before you become a Christian, what does the Bible call us? You think you're free. We think we're free. We're making all these choices. But what does the Bible say that we are? What? What? what, what? Slaves. Slaves. To what? Sin. So no one's really free. It is actually the grace of God that comes, touches us, works within us this amazing work of God, which is called sanct- uh, regeneration. Uh, and that is what causes then for us to even have a modicum of the ability to actually say yes to God in a meaningful way. So this is, this is disturbing, right? Well, on that topic, <laughs> uh, you can look at the last few verses in Matthew um, 25, uh, where Jesus clearly says that hell was prepared for the devil and his angels. So it's a cosmic prison. It wasn't made for humans. It was made for, devil and the, for the devil and his angels. That's what Jesus said. Last few verses in Matthew 25. So... What, what I want to tell you now is you feel the tension in the room? Do you feel sovereignty of God? Are we puppets? Do we have choice? So when theologians have wrestled with this, they have come up with this term, which I want you to remember and read today, right about the time when you know the Browns are going to get crushed. Turn it off. <laughs> go to Wikipedia and read this. Antinomy. Anti-against, nomos law. An antinomy is two apparent laws that appear to be totally contradictory to one another. What's another term in common usage English that we use to describe something like this? Two parallel truths that seem to be contradictory. Uh, Yes, paradox. Para, alongside of, dox, belief. A paradox is a contradictory, apparent, apparent. We have to remember apparent because when the theologians talk about an antinomy and God's sovereignty and human volitional ability, they don't believe that there is any contradiction. So Judge Haas isn't here, so the rest of you get blessed. Here's the answer from classic theology. Here's the sovereignty of God and here's human ability. What happens when we put more weight on the sovereignty of God? This is a scale. This is the sovereignty of God. So this is now counting in our theology as much heavier. 
what happens? Uh, what? Oh, no, no, no. No, no. I mean, I can see why you would say that, but I, the, my analogy is misleading. We're putting our, all of our theological weight. God is sovereign. Nothing comes to pass. Humans, they, they, they're just here. God's working everything out. What does it make humans? It feels like puppets, right? And then your question comes, well, what, what happens to those people that go to hell? Did God cause them to go to hell? Did God make them go to hell? See, that's, that's where it gets sticky, right? Okay, now let's reverse it. So let's say we put all of the weight on human volitional ability. We make humans our will, our choice. Americans, we can choose. Now what? God's sovereignty starts sliding, disappearing, and human ability and human choice becomes predominant. Is that good? Why not? God can even almost become impotent. And in fact, there's a great movement in, our, in theological circles today. Maybe you've heard about it. It's called open theism. Anyone ever hear that term? Open theism? It is the notion that God really isn't sovereign and God really isn't omnipotent. God has great intentions and God has a lot of power and God wants to work things out, but no, God doesn't make all things work out. A lot of people are going to it. You know why? Yes, they want something to fit. It makes sense. Oh yeah, God wants all this horrible stuff that happened. God wants it to happen. Doesn't want it to happen, but God can't really do anything about it. Of course, if you believe that God is totally sovereign, whew, I'm sorry, then you have to say about everything, like Haiti, you have to say what? Did, was that an accident? Did God know about that? So, what uh, the older theologians tried to teach us so that we wouldn't lose our brains and minds is, why don't you just believe both simultaneously? In other words, believe that God is sovereign, and when you lay your head on the pillow at night, you can say what? God is on God's throne. God is working all things together according to the counsel of God's own will. God's going to win. We know this. The prophecies are secure. Everything's been worked out. Then when you get up in the morning, you should say what? What? Praise God. Well, yes, praise God. You can never go wrong with that one. God's sovereign. You went to bed at night. God's sovereign. You get up in the morning. You're a volitional agent. Do you have choices? Do you have powers that God has given to you? Are you a human or a robot? So then you can get up with Abraham Lincoln in the morning and say, I pray as if everything depends on God. And I act as if everything depends on me. Isn't that sweet? I love that. I love Lincoln. That's the way out of this dilemma. Then you don't have to worry about it. Did Judas have a real choice? Yes. Did God and Jesus know he was going to make that choice? Yes. Did God and Jesus make him make that choice? 
No, that's not what the sovereignty of God means. So you hold both intention like that. Now, took a little bit too much time, but I want to show you something before we go, and then Zev's going to answer the second question. Uh, I want you to go over to uh, the book of Acts, chapter 2, verse 23, and I'm telling you, when I see Judge Hawes, I selected this text specifically for him, because it has legal implications. <laughs> Judge Milligan, you've got to get t- with him to lunch this week and <laughs> illuminate him. Who's got Acts 2, 23? Really? You don't. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. This is Peter. Acts 2, first Christian sermon, day of Pentecost. What does he say to the religious leaders in Jerusalem? What did you do? Jesus, he's talking about Jesus. Jesus was handed over to you, how? By God's, God's will, God's choice. God handed Jesus over to you, and then he says, and you, not just that you crucified him, but you with, how does he qualify it? With wickedness. It was wicked to do it. So God said, here I give him to you, and it was also simultaneously what? Wicked to kill him. It was a volitional wickedness. If, if we believed in the sovereignty of God that excused human choice, then Peter would never have said that. He would have just said, look, Jesus got handed over by the determinate will of God, and you killed him because you had no choice. Instead, he says, like a lawyer would, like a judge would, you did this thing, and it was wicked. wicked. Do you feel the tension? Yeah. That's an antinomy. Now go over to uh, 1 Peter 1.20. Where's the mic? First Peter one twenty. It's Peter one twenty. Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Who was who was foreordained Jesus. before the foundation of the world? Christ. Jesus Christ. So, you know, Genesis one. The cosmos gets created, and then everything rolls on from there. What happened before the universe got created? In the mind of God, symbol for God, prior to creation, God not t- just didn't know, but what? Forwarding. Ordained, planned. For what? Jesus to come. He was crucified from the foundation of the world, from before the world. So what does that mean, implicationally? If that was planned and known about, well, yes. (laughs) Right, but 
But, 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 but what? And at the same time, we're responsible. We have to choose. And God's grace is available to us, and Judas had a choice, and each one of us does. And I hope that makes you sleep better at night. Okay, Zev, teach us about faith. Uh, Barb wanted to know, um, if she was trying to get at, um, well, uh, Judas, um, I said something that the faith that God works inside of a person, mm-hmm. the God-ordained faith, the Holy Spirit-ordained faith, that will not fail. Peter failed, but the faith that God put into him did not fail. And she wanted to know, then why did Judas fail? Okay. Of his faith. Okay. Is that right? You guys remember this? All right. Why wasn't he redeemed on through that act as opposed to why do we still need to? If Peter was, uh, Jesus was praying for Peter, then what? I made it, may, maybe, maybe I misunderstood her question. About belief in God. Like, like we choose to believe in God or not. So why do we? Yes, that's Jesus what, that's right. But it's not like Jesus wasn't praying for Judas. We just don't have that information. He was praying for all of them. Okay? So uh, that issue right there simply is addressing the fact that these guys are all under spiritual warfare and they're all facing choices and the master is praying for them. But I think she wanted to know why did you, am I, did I catch it right or maybe? She wanted to know why did Judas not go on and why did Peter go on? Was that just Jesus' choice, or was there something inside the human, too? And it okay. gets that faith, okay? Okay, I'd actually like to start by doing something very briefly, if I can, uh, with um, what John just got through teaching you. And this is, there's a handout on your table, and it's my schematic summary of Paul's very detailed argument in Romans 7 through 8. And this was extremely important in the process of my conversion. And I wanted to really address the issue both from the perspective of what John just presented and then bring it home to the faith issue in terms of how I experienced it in my own life of coming to faith and how that works. Okay? Now, by irony, how many of you listen in the mornings on NPR to On Being with Krista Tippett? Did you hear the broadcast this morning with Leonard Mladenov? Okay, he's a physicist, and they were talking about the issue of science and free will. Okay, and he said, well, I mean, let's face it, human beings are a highly complex, nonlinear system, and you put them in interactions with other highly complex, nonlinear systems, there is, while in theory you could perfect, if you had enough data, you could predict their actions perfectly, but in practice, you can't, and therefore, our experience is, we have genuine choices. Okay, that's another way of looking at this. 
I want to look at the way Paul, in effect, talked about it. And I want to start at just that point where we have choices to make, where we experience a fact that we are facing a choice. And I'm not just, you know, talking about everyday sort of trivial choices about, well, I'm going out to eat, should I have uh, Chinese or Mexican? That's not the kind of choices we're talking about. What we're talking about is the real choice between good and evil, okay? A real choice between good and evil, or between a lesser evil and a greater evil, or a greater good and a lesser good. The real serious moral choices. Or, in my case, do I become a Christian or not? And what I wanted to do, the reason I chose the phrase choice point on this handout is to say, before the event, there's no question we have a genuine choice to make. And who's responsible for that choice? We are. I am. I'm responsible for that choice. Because nobody else can make that choice. I'm the one who has to make that choice. Now, for Paul, the basic paradigm is that every choice we make, certainly in the Christian life, is a choice between two different ways. Are we going to live according to the spirit, or are we going to live according to the flesh? Those are always the choices we have to make. In other words, you know, when I'm confronted with a really serious choice, when I wake up in the morning and I know I have some choices to make and I have, you know, the alarm goes off and I really don't feel like going into work today. Oh my God, I just don't. I'm not really sick, but would it be okay just to call my boss and say, I'm sick today, I'm not coming in? Well... That's a choice between, if you will, what I know I am called to do and have the resources to do, but just don't feel like doing, or am I just gonna go according to my lazy bones, fleshly way of thinking of, oh, bed is so warm and it's so cold outside. Oh no, I don't wanna get out of bed. Okay, choice between spirit and flesh. Now, if I walk according to the Spirit, what's the result? Right there on your, what? Well, I mean, on your handout, what's the result of it walking according to the Spirit? A good deed. Okay, that's a good thing. I'm taking directions from God. And therefore, I would think that act would normally result in some praise, would it not? It's a praiseworthy act. However, who gets the praise? What? The Holy Spirit gets the praise. Why? Because that's the one who motivated me to act in the way I did. Now, and here's where it gets really interesting from a Christian point of view. If I 
walk according to the flesh and make that choice, what's the result? Sin. And what do we normally think of sin, an evil act? What results from that? Blame. That's blameworthy. But for Christians, who takes the blame? Christ takes the blame. Now, why do I put the schema this way? Because if we are serious about our Christian faith, the interesting thing is that we come down with this little paradox. We are totally responsible for our actions and for our choices. And if we make the right one, the Holy Spirit gets the credit. And if we make the wrong one, Jesus Christ takes the blame. And both of those are to the glory of God. Ad maiorum dei gloriam. Okay? In other words, this is what it means to be in Christ. This is what it means to have Christian faith. It's a win-win proposition. So in other words, I am, you know, and this takes us then, I think, really to where I can talk about my own experience in becoming a Christian. I could call this before and after, okay? Before I made the decision to become a Christian, and after I made that decision. You know, my conversion to Christianity um, was a result of a number of different, uh, it was at once mundane and dramatic. There were three dimensions to it. There are some very key relationships in my life that played a major role in sort of making Christianity a live option, to use William James's phrase. And there were also some reading I did, some serious reading, C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity, and of course, in the New Testament. And um, that brought me to a point where I understood that I had a serious choice to make. And the choice was, do I stay as a rather secularized Jew or do I convert to Christianity? And that was a choice that's really fraught. Because you gotta realize I was living in Denver only a few blocks from my Jewish father. May he rest in peace, although he might be turning over in his grave at this point. <laughs> um, so, and I knew it was gonna be tough on all of my family. It really was. And so this was not an easy choice to make. And what finally brought me to the point of acting on the message of the gospel that I had been reading was a series of inner experiences. Now the important point is, looking back on it, now I see this had to be the work of the Holy Spirit. No other way to describe it. But then, I was taking a workshop in personal growth through dreams with an analytical psychologist. Okay, 
So I was paying attention to dreams and those also twilight experiences that you have when your mind sort of shifts into neutral and images come in. And so the real crescendo of these experiences, the high point, and you know, I, this is just quickly going over parts of what I put in my personal testimony. Um, the really high point was where I had a dream where I flew into the sun and there I had a vision of like four human faces bound together by a wheel and a cross of fire. And the feeling I had was of just absolute ecstasy, like nothing I have ever experienced either before or since. And it was very momentary. And when I came out of that, the voice in the dream told me what it meant. It said, the Holy Trinity plus one who does their will. And I understood that that was an invitation from God the Trinity to share God's life. Pretty powerful. And then, but I still hesitated. I mean, this was a pretty difficult choice to make. And it was not until a third dream, another dream came along with a circle of elder women surrounding me as I knelt in their midst and they laid hands on me and one of them behind me said, he needs baptism, not punishment. He needs baptism, not punishment. At that point, I took that to be something like an order. And so on the Feast of the Transfiguration in 1978, August 6th, I was baptized. And I was baptized with all of my names, including my Hebrew name, Zev William David Rosenberg. And uh, that later led to a little bit of an oddity when I was ordained. I was ordained in a diocese that was fairly Anglo-Catholic, and priests were always called father. And uh, Carrie and I joke, my spouse and I joke, that Father Rosenberg sounds a bit like Rabbi O'Malley. <laughs> So that's when we came up with the moniker of Rev Zev. <laughs> okay. Now, please understand what I'm about to say. Before my baptism, I saw conversion to Christianity as a choice I had to make. And it was a serious choice. And I was the one who had to make it and only I could make it, and therefore only I was responsible for making that choice. And in Paul's words in Philippians 2, 12, I had to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. It was up to me to work out my own salvation with fear and trembling. But later, on prayerful reflection, I understood clearly that all along, from my childhood on, it was God who was working in me both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that's why I call this before and after. Before the fact, we have a choice to make. And it's a genuine choice, and we're responsible. But after the fact, who was responsible for, you know, who gets the credit for my faith? The Holy Spirit gets the credit for my faith. By grace you have been saved through faith, Paul says in Ephesians, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift from 
God. Okay? The faith does not come from ourselves. In other words, throughout the entire process, the Holy Spirit was persuading me so powerfully and so persuasively that in the end, I probably could have made no other choice. But that's something I can only see in hindsight. Okay, could not see it before then. And as Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me. You may think you chose me, but I chose you. I chose you. Now, to get to that question about Judas versus Peter. In a very real sense, going back to John's diagram about from before the foundation of the world, yes, in a sense, he was chosen for that role, but he still gave himself voluntarily to it. He gave himself voluntarily to it. He exercised his volition to betray Jesus. And that was the role for which he was chosen. Peter was chosen for a different role. Peter was chosen for the role of apostle. And therefore, Jesus, in praying for him, knew that the Holy Spirit would be active to preserve him. As Jesus in the great high priestly prayer of consecration, when he prays for his disciples in John 17, what does he ask the Father to do for his disciples? Keep them. Keep them. Not necessarily make them invulnerable, but preserve them, keep them. So that while we may err and fail and sin, if we have been chosen by Jesus, we cannot fail fatally. We cannot fail fatally. So that's that. Now, I just one final word about free will. Okay. I can basically tell you in one word why I have become a skeptic on the subject of free will. In fact, in one syllable. Freud. Okay. I think that one of the things when we get into discussions about free will and grace, we need to take seriously the insights of Freud who said basically almost all of our actions are probably the result of unconscious impulses. And we don't like to think that. We don't like to think that we're like puppets on a string. The only problem is the strings all go down into our un unconscious psyche. So no one else is responsible for it. But this is, in fact, Freud was giving a good secular definition of original sin to a great extent. Freud was also raked over the coals because it was the Victorian era when he started writing and when he came up with the term infantile narcissism, 
that a newborn child is not an angel from heaven, but a perfect narcissist, people were outraged. Well, I've met a lot of people who never outgrew that, and let me tell you, I think he was on target. Okay? Any questions at this point? Ah, for people, there, for non-believers, people who have no faith at all, you just get the bottom half of the schematic, except for one thing. It's a big debate in theology about whether or not Jesus Christ took the blame for their sin. According to sort of classic Reformed theology, no, he didn't. Now, for people of other faiths, I think, and this is where John and I, I think are on the same page, because it is the Holy Spirit who works faith, and the Holy Spirit is God, while the only way we as Christians know the Holy Spirit works is on behalf of Jesus Christ, that doesn't mean that the Holy Spirit cannot work in other historical, cultural, or faith contexts. But it would still be the same thing. It is faith engendered by the Holy Spirit that brings people to know and love God to whatever degree they are capable of doing it. Well, on a certain level, not all Jews would be, but if a Jew has real faith and trust in God and looks to God as the source of their own ability to do the right thing, sure. On the other hand, if a Jew is somebody, you know, is say a, just a cultural Jew or an atheist, um, What's the faith in that? And I would say the same thing about almost any other religion. The other thing to keep in mind about the Jewish people is that, and I don't have time to go into this, Romans 9 through 11 is a lengthy discussion about the place of Israel in God's plan. And God's not finished with the Jewish people yet. And in a sense, Paul's saying, don't worry about the Jewish people. God has that one very safely in hand. You just go about doing what you're supposed to do, recognizing that you are fortunate enough by the grace of God as a wild olive branch to be grafted into this cultivated olive tree of Israel. And that God has graciously given you the status of an Israelite when by birth you had no right to it. Okay? All right, now, go. Well, I'm reminded of a marvelous line in a series of essays by a young Episcopal girl 
Um, OE, in a book called O.E. Jigs and Juleps, which I heartily recommend. Her name was Virginia Carey Hudson. And she said she once got into a fight, with, you know, an argument with some of her young friends who were Presbyterians because she said Presbyterians believe in procrastination. <laughs> so they decided to go to the Presbyterian minister and ask him that. And he said, yeah, they sure do. I can tell from their pledge records. <laughs> Pre predestination is just, again, it's another way of looking at the sovereignty of God. And, you know, it's, you, you, you get this, especially in, you know, there is a section in Romans 8. If, and what I'd suggest is take that schema that I gave you today home and read through Romans 7 to 8. Okay, I don't know let, if we Let me give them one assignment and then you can keep, keep teaching. Okay, so I taught a study about 25 years ago out in Hartville, and there was this stone-cold Mennonite woman, scholar, serious Christian. And she came to the Bible study one night, and she said to all, all of us, uh, well, I'm done praying. There's no point in praying, because God is in charge of everything. God is totally sovereign. What's the point? And she was very discouraged about this. So I gave her an assignment. I said, I want you to go through the, I gave her like five of the classic passages in the New Testament that put the sovereignty of God and human choice right next to each other. And I said, I want you to go through the New Testament. Every time you find a sovereignty of God statement, then you use the blue highlighter to highlight that. So like you just, mentioned one, like if we started in Ephesians when Paul says, you know, we were predestined from the, from the beginning of the, the world to be chosen by God, you would mark that with blue. And then later on I said, and every time you look in the context you'll find another statement this is the sovereignty of God. You'll find also statements right in the context about human volition. And I want you to mark them with another color code. Yellow or something. So this woman was like such a motivated scholar that when she came back two weeks later, she had power read through the entire New Testament. And she, she cracked open the Bible and she said, look at this. And she showed us visually, spatially, that it was actually the way it turned out, as I said, every place in the New Testament where a sovereignty of God's statement is made, right in the context you will find what? a human volitional statement. And you ought not pit them against each other. I mean, you can, and then you wind up in theological mental institute. Instead, do what? That's what I'm trying to tell you to save time. Do what? Believe, believe what? Both. Just believe both. And when you come across the sovereignty of God statement, say, thank God. The universe is in, under God's control. It's not going to fall apart. Everything's okay. And then when you get over here and you find a human volitional statement, you, you, the, the true believer will say, because I believe God is sovereign, I am now going to exercise my will through the energy that the Holy Spirit gives to me, and I'm going to fuse my will with God's will. Not that God needs me. 
And, and, and when I fail, I come, like we're studying Peter. I mean, you can't fail. Fail big or go home. Three, three denials. I don't even know the guy. When you fail, yes, then you realize Christ, as Zeb taught you, Christ took the blame for that. And then you get up and ask God for the grace to choose again to fuse your will in. Does that make sense? Try that assignment. Yellow for um, human will, blue for sovereignty. We have four weeks left in the course. Expect you all to have the New Testament done by then. Okay. And I have two more brief comments and then really need to move on. Um, I remember my, I had a classmate in seminary, Greg, who any time in church history where we got near anybody, St. Augustine, Luther, Calvin, and so on and so forth, you know, who had a strong doctrine of election, he'd say, I have real problems with that. And I remember what our Lutheran church historian, the late Don Armantrout, would say to him in his beautiful southern accent. I know you want to be responsible for your own salvation. I don't. I just blow it. (laughs) Don't you see that the doctrine of election is a gracious doctrine? Okay. Let's move on to the denial, which is really what we need to cover today. I'm in Luke chapter 22, verses 54 to 62. Luke 22, 54 to 62. Who wants to read? Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. But Peter was falling at a distance. When they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him in the firelight, stared at him and said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else on seeing him said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I'm not. Then about an hour later, yet another kept insisting, Surely this man also was with him, for he's a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. At that moment, while he was still speaking, the cock crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said to him, Before the cock crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Okay. All right. So, Jesus has been arrested. He's been taken to the house of the high priest. He's under guard there. Peter follows at a distance and sort of sneaks into the courtyard and warms himself by the fire with the other folks. Then what happens? What? He's recognized. Not once, not twice, but three times. And what's his response to that recognition? I don't know the guy. I don't know what you're talking about. I'm not part of that crew. Okay. 
Now, you can't get much more of an emphatic denial of Jesus than saying, I don't know the man. Okay. Now, Luke adds one detail here that the other gospel writers don't. And that after the cock crows, what happens? Jesus, he doesn't say anything. He just turns to Peter and looks at him. All this time, he knows Peter's there. Peter can see him. And now Jesus turns and looks at him. What do you suppose that look was like? Okay, what do you think Peter saw in Jesus' look? Forgiveness? Pain? Love and sadness. Disappointment? What? Humanity. Humanity. Humanity? How about all of the above? Tell us what you mean by that. What? Human frailty. Human frailty. Yes. Okay. Yes. How do you think you would have looked at Peter? Anger? What? Ah! Okay. Disappointment. Surprise. Well, again, how about, actually, I don't know about surprise, because what did Jesus told Peter beforehand? You're going to do it. I tell you, before the cock crows, you will deny me three times. Okay, now you can't fail much worse than that, as John said. But I think there's a beautiful icon, one of the earliest and most famous icons in Eastern Christianity is this icon of, um, called the, 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 the Pantocrator or All Ruler of Sinai. It was painted at Mount Athos, uh, on Mount, uh, at Sinai, at St. Catherine's Monastery. Okay, and it's one of the early Christian icons. I'm going to pass this around, but when you look at it, I want you to notice one of the most extraordinary features of this icon. Okay. The right eye, which is, no, that's the left eye. Okay. The right eye, which is on your left, is very open, compassionate, caring, loving. The left eye is very stern, almost judgmental. And that's by design. Now, what's interesting to me as a person of Jewish background, when I gaze at this icon, is that in the Jewish mystical system, 
the, there are two main attributes of God, and these come from rabbinic tradition, that are, in a sense, always in tension with each other. There is the attribute of mercy, and there is the attribute of rigor, called midat arachamim, you know, the attribute of rachamim, from the word root rechem, meaning womb. The womb-like mercy and compassion of God. And the attribute of din, literally judgment. Usually translated rigor. The attribute of mercy is on the right side. That's where that eye is. The attribute of rigor is on the left side. That's where that eye is. Now, as I pass it around, I just want you to notice one thing about the book he's holding. It has a cross on the cover, but if you look at how it opens, it's got a Hebrew opening. So, I think he looked at him with both infinite compassion as well as infinite rigor. And that's why the cross is necessary for all of us. And then finally, a big difference between Judas and Peter. What did Judas do after he saw that Jesus was betrayed, was condemned? He killed himself. Yeah, but the fact of the matter is, you know, he, well, there, there's another thing about that. I don't know if I've got time to get into that, but yeah, he threw the silver back. Yes, but then what did he do? He went and hanged himself. In other words, what was his response? What was his response to this recognition of the wrong he'd committed? Despair. What was Peter's response to his failure? What? Repentance. Repentance. Big difference. Big difference. Okay. John, you've got three minutes to do no, the No, I don't have three minutes, but that's okay. Hey, it was great studying with you, and um, we will pick up next week. Uh, I hope you leave here today with uh, um, some information, but I hope you really leave with this last thought in mind. Um, I'm sure all of us have despaired of, over our lives at times. And when Judas did that, when he despaired over his life, he decided that killing himself was a just and equitable resolution for the failure that he made. Do you see that? He was, he was guilty. He despaired. He said, I blew it. I completely lost it. So he just, as a payment for it, as, a, as to deal with it, to resolve it, what does he do? kill himself. Now think about this. What did God do for us? God allowed himself to be killed for us. And we must retain that when we fail. You yeah. must understand there's nothing that you and I can ever do to pay. That's been done for us once and for all through the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And that's what we have to keep our faith in. So God bless you this week. And okay, we will just one, pick it up. One, one more little word. Week. I'm glad you brought out throwing the pieces of silver down because what he said to the high priest at that point is, I have sinned against heaven 
and against, um, and, and, and uh, by betraying innocent blood. And they say, what is that to us? Go and deal with it yourself. In a sense, Judas went to the wrong place. So I want to pose to you this little mental issue. Okay, what if Judas, instead of going to the priests in the temple, had made his way to Calvary with the same 30 pieces of silver, and at Calvary, Jesus is dying on the cross, Judas throws himself at the foot of the cross, the blood of Jesus dripping on him, throws down the 30 pieces of silver, and says, I have sinned against heaven by betraying innocent blood. Does Jesus forgive him? What? Yes. Well, what have you done, ever done that's worse than Judas? You go to the cross, you're going to get forgiveness, period. 